Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Mark 8. Mark 8. If the Lord wills, Steve will be back next week. Uh, last week, if you remember Will, Weber preached a, a great sermon on Psalm 137. Um, and after hearing that, I had the urge, as any, the normal fatherly mode, to one-up him. I guess, like, well, you know, there's other passages that have bigger shock value or uh, are more graphic. If you remember, Psalm 137 is what he calls kind of a PG verse. But uh, um, I resisted the urge to preach from something like Judges 19, and uh, I landed in Mark 8. So um, would you pray with me, and we'll get started. Lord, you say over and over in your word, you call us to have eyes to see. Lord, we all are in some ways blind spiritually. Some of us may be totally blind. Some of us see in part. Lord, I pray that we would long for that day when we would see fully. You call us to have ears to hear. Lord, I pray that now you would give us ears to hear. Maybe someone for the first time to have ears to hear. Lord, our arms and our legs look straight, but our spiritual arms and legs legs are tangled and mangled, twisted. Only you can straighten them and make them whole. So I pray that you would do that today. In your name, amen. All right, Mark 8. Starting in verse 1, he says this, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I will send them away hungry to their homes. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come a far way. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, the leftover, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Have your hearts, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? 
when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on, his, on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. <clears throat> well, I think as a, as a culture, I don't know if this is just specific for America or, or the, the world, but I know in America we are enamored or we are fascinated with those stories or those tales of superhuman feats. I remember even fondly in English class in grade school reading about Paul Bunyan and his, his the giant lumberjack and Babe the Blue Ox and all of his feats, or maybe kids, you have a uh, favorite superhero, maybe one that can fly or is extra strong, right? Maybe my, but my, my favorite example is of Chuck Norris facts. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, some of you may have no clue. Um, Chuck Norris, as I think most of you maybe know, he's a martial artist and an actor, the ultimate tough guy, and so there's these facts that kind of made the rounds maybe 12 to 14 years ago uh, on the internet, kind of speaking hyperbole about Chuck Norris's great toughness, masculinity. Um, not all are appropriate on the internet, um, so, but I do have in front of me, I have the official Chuck Norris fact book, 101 of Chuck's favorite facts and stories. Um, he officially approves these. He, uh, he is a professing Christian, I, I don't know, um, but... Um, I can't make a judgment, but uh, just an example of four of them, I thought, uh, from here, as picked out by my children, Number uh, one of them, if at first you don't succeed, you are not Chuck Norris. Uh, <laughs> um, where is, um, fact 54, they wanted to put Chuck Norris on Mount Rushmore, but the granite wasn't tough enough for his beard. <laughs> Chuck Norris... Fact number 15, Superman wears Chuck Norris pajamas to bed at night. (laughs) And uh, number one, Chuck Norris was bitten by a cobra. And after five days of excruciating pain, the cobra died. (laughs) uh, But these facts are absurd. And the text before us today... Is bookended by a miracle. I think you saw it. It's very clear that at the beginning, at the end, of the, is a miracle of Jesus. And there's a tendency or a danger to many times, I think, view these miracles of Jesus as um, maybe, a, maybe a, a, like a Chuck Norris fact. Maybe different because they actually happened, but they're just good stories. They're kind of fun to tell, kind of exciting. You know, they're, they're a, a feel-good story. Well, Mark is far wiser. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the aim of this miracle, and these miracles, and of all the miracles, is to teach us something. To teach us about Jesus. 
And so for us to just read these stories and just say, man, that was cool, like that just shows us that Jesus is God, is to miss a great part of this story. And so my goal is for us that we would have eyes to see because the goal of Mark all through it, over and over and over, is the question is, who is Jesus? He asks it again and again and again. And he tries to show us in many different ways. And then there's lots of other questions that you would see as you read through it that come from that one question, such as, who am I then? What is required of me? How am I to view others? See, Mark's emphasis is one main goal, is to show that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that, man, we miss it in so many different ways. So today, will you see him for who he is? This passage looks and talks of sight and seeing who Jesus is. So just a little bit of a background, because we're going to jump right in the middle of Mark. This is the the very end of four acts, or four portions of Mark. Chapters 1 through 8.26 is his time up in the Sea of Galilee. It's up north, and it's, it's the account of what he did up there. And then the end of Mark 8 all the way to Mark 13 is as he's traveling south to Jerusalem. And then 14 through 16 is his crucifixion and resurrection. And so we'll see that he deals with four groups today. Four groups. He deals with them throughout Mark. He's in shrinking circles. And shrinking sizes. I, I trust that you'll see it. In verses 1 through 10, it's Jesus in the crowd. Verses 11 through 13, Jesus and the Pharisees. 14 through 21, Jesus and the disciples. And then the last one, 8 through 26, just one man, one blind man, Jesus and the man. So number one, Jesus in the crowd, starting in verse 1. And before I get there, uh, this is a little tangential, but I think that it begs the question because throughout, especially the Gospels and especially this text, there is a question of, is this text reliable? Or is, can we trust the historical reliability of these words? Can we believe that they've reliably been written? Because, and maybe you don't ask that question, but if you were reading through Mark, you would ask that question. Because if you just go back one page in chapter 6, there is a, more often talked about, more often preached on, more often read story that's very similar, very, very similar, of feeding of the 5,000. And so skeptics or modern scholars would say, hey, you know what, here's what happened. This is really this, the same account, but what happened is there was this oral tradition. And so, the, you know, it's kind of like a telephone game. It just got told to, to, over and over and over. And so the stories just kind of diverged. So instead of 5,000, there's 4,000. Instead of the... the you know, the, the five loaves, there's the seven. And, and so the story just kind of diverged. And so it just shows us that, you know, Mark, the stories of Mark are just all these stories that are kind of thrown together. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's different authors. And, or, or maybe Mark really wrote it, but he, was just, he just was confused. He made a mistake. Well, I think you would see if, if you do an honest reading of the text, you can just look... I think there's four reasons. Three, just right within the text, show us that this is a trustworthy narrative, that this is historically accurate. Look in verse 1, just to start out with. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered. So Mark's saying, hey, I know the last time I said that there was a great crowd was Mark 6 when he fed the 5,000. So I'm saying, 
I, I know that you're going to ask the question. He's saying, again. Or secondly, if you read the chronologically through the book of Mark or Matthew, the, the same two stories are told in Matthew, it's in two different regions. The, the first of the 5,000 is told on the west side, west side, uh, the, the northwest side of, of the Sea of Galilee, where he fed the 5,000. And this is, sto- this, stole, this is told in the Decapolis on the south side. But not only that, if you look in verses 19 and 20, where Jesus is talking to them, he says, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full did I pick up? And then he says in verse 20, the seven for the 4,000. So Mark is very deliberate. He's very precise. And so if Mark is confused, then Jesus is as well. But there was an, there's yet reason number four. Um, amongst many. There's many other reasons, but I think I I trust that uh, you see the point. But reason number four, it's interesting. Uh, Many modern scholars pointed this out, that if you look at the the word, the Greek word for baskets in verse 19, and the Greek word for baskets in verse 20, just one verse apart, it's two different words. And so the modern scholars are saying, you know, the, the baskets that were used for the 5,000 were like laundry baskets. They were huge, these big, huge baskets where in verse 20, it was just these small little saucer plate or oversized plates. So it's a different basket. So he's being very direct, very direct and very... His point is that these are two different stories. And Mark is the author. He's not confused. He knows what he's talking about. And we can trust his words. And so we come to this text. And what do we see in verses 1 through 10? He wants us to show us one thing says, I have compassion on the crowd, in verse 2, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He has compassion on them. You know, what's interesting is in, in the story of the 5,000, Jesus says, I have compassion on them because they are like a sheep without a shepherd. They don't know where to go. They aren't being taught. And so at first he teaches them spiritually, saying, hey, I'm the bread of life, and then he provides for them. And he follows the same pattern here in, in, uh, for the 4,000. He tells them and he, he teaches them for four to three days. And then he has compassion on them. But the compassion here is they just don't have any food. They're hungry. And if they go away, they're going to faint on the way. Do you see the compassion of Jesus? Not only does he care for our spiritual needs, but he cares for our physical needs. He cares about the details. He cares about the mundane Throughout all the New Testament, we see the compassion of Jesus. Luke seven thirteen, he, when he's raising the widow's son, it says, when he saw her, the widow, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Or the story of the father of the prodigal son, just like we, we uh, liken him to the father of the prodigal son, it says, when he arose and came to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Paul Tripp says, divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Isn't that true? Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. He supplied completely. And don't miss this obvious fact. Not only did he supply, but the obvious fact here is that he applied abundantly. Doesn't, don't you see that? There were seven baskets that were left over. One other thing. Before we leave this passage, 
is the location of this miracle. It's in the Decapolis, on the furthest southmost side of the Sea of Galilee. There's no account or evidence that Jesus ever was there before or ever went again. And just, I, I was just, as I was thinking about this this week, I was like, how captivating, how amazing must Jesus have been for them to be with him for three days? I mean, how did that work? Did he preach for two hours and then take an hour off? Did he preach the whole time? Did he go from like groups from a 50 here, then he preached to another group of 50? Then he pre- I mean, how would that have worked? 4,000 people, three days. How would they be willing to spend the night sleeping outside? But what, we want, what he's trying to show here is that this was mainly and predominantly a Gentile area. And so he's showing that, hey, I have compassion. I have compassion not only for the Jews, though. I have compassion for all people, for the Jews and the Gentiles. I'm bringing in a new kingdom. And everybody missed it. The disciples missed it, even though they saw the miracle of a couple of days before. And we don't know exactly how this crowd responded, but we do know how most of the crowds responded. In John 12, it says, Though he, being Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he, had, he heard from us? And who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. So the crowd, they missed it. They have, here's this, do you, do you see this? Here's the compassionate heart of Jesus supplying not only their physical needs, but their spiritual needs, saying, I'm the bread of life. And they just missed it. They're blind. So I ask you, do you believe this story? Do you believe it's true? Do you believe he's able to do this? <clears throat> In verse 10 it says, he left them and got into a boat and went to Dalmanutha. And so he interacts now with Jesus and the Pharisees. <clears throat> so right at the offset, again, necessarily asking for a sign isn't necessarily a bad thing. <clears throat> a sign is an attesting miracle. So if you're a prophet and you say, hey, I'm, who, I'm this prophet, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of God, well, it would be normal for somebody to say, Okay, where, where's the sign to prove this? Just as in, in Exodus, when Moses, if you remember, he had the staff and Jesus said, put it down on the ground. And it turned into a serpent and then he picked it up and it turned back into a staff. It was a sign that he was sent by God to help the, people, the Israelites. So necessarily, this isn't a bad thing for the Pharisees to be asking for a sign. But look in verse 11. The problem is the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. See, whatever he said, whatever he did, was not going to be enough. Not only that, if you were to read Mark, what has he been doing all since the beginning? If you go back to the beginning, he's healing people. He's performing miracles. He's walking on water. He's multiplied food once already. And not only that, the greatest miracle, the greatest sign was standing right in front of them. Here was Jesus, a sign from heaven. They want a sign from heaven. Jesus was their sign from heaven. And they missed it. I think many of you can 
understand and can see how Jesus was exasperated. What did he do? He sighed deeply. Maybe you have a boss or maybe you have a friend that whatever you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you help them, no matter what, you, what work you put in on this project, it's never enough, right? There's always a better way you could have done it, always more you could have, could have done. And it just causes you to sigh deeply. Or maybe, are you the one who causes others to sigh? Fathers, do you cause your children to sigh, to be exasperated? Ephesians 6, 4, this is exactly what um, Paul's talking about. Don't provoke your children to anger. There's been so many times I've had to apologize for being a father who causes my children to sigh deeply. But what is Jesus' response? His response is, no, I'm not going to be your little street performer. Maybe you've been to a big city and there's this guy on the, on the side of the street and he has this uncanny ability that like, he can't do any magic tricks until you, there's enough money in, the, in his hat or enough money in his can, right? And so once, you, once there's enough money, then he'll do the, the magic trick. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be your street performer. No matter what I say, no matter what I do, it's not enough. <clears throat> Reminded me of the rich, the, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man in Luke, Luke 16 is taken to Hades, and if you remember, the poor man goes up to, to Abraham's side. It's understood to be heaven. And there's this dialogue between Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man in Hades says, can, can Lazarus come and dip his finger in water and cool my tongue? For I am in anguish. And Abraham saying, no, that, that doesn't work that way. You can't do that. So the rich man replies again, and then he says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the, this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham responds and says to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here's a prime example of confirmation bias, right? They were convinced of who Jesus was, and whatever he did wasn't going to change. They were, or he was, who they thought he was. Some of you, that does, any, does that remind somebody of anybody, of anything? No? All right. Yeah, we got one. So I was going to, I don't know if, I, if this is appropriate to use, if it's going to make a connection, but there's a, I typically don't use sports connection, analogies, but in 2006, the Bears were playing the Cardinals. And so this is called the Monday Night Comeback. And so you had to be reminded at that time, and uh, maybe if you don't know, don't know football, but the offense, the goal of the offense is to score points. The goal of the defense is to keep the other teams from scoring points, and then there's special teams that kind of usually doesn't do either one, but, or very well. But um, <clears throat> what happened was this, the, the Bears were playing, uh, it was October 16th, 2006. The Bears were playing... The Cardinals. And the Bears quarterback throws four interceptions to the other team, and he fumbles it twice. Six turnovers. 
The halftime score is 20 to 0. And the final score, the Bears amazingly win, 24 to 3. And it's only because the special team scores a touchdown and the defense scores two others. But what is most remarkable or most memorable about this story is that there is one of the greatest post-time, post-game rants of all time by Dennis Green. He's since passed away. But it's a kind of a profanity-laced tirade. But in there, he says over and over, they were who we thought they were. They were who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. You know, and some other, other words in there. But um, so presumably his point was, that they were who he thought they were. They, they weren't very good. We, we should have beat them. Forgetting the whole irony of how in the world, how great that team was to be able to have six interceptions and still beat that team. Totally forget, misses the point. He was, they were who he thought they were. <clears throat> this is the same thing here. The Pharisees... They, they were who he thought. They, he, Jesus was who they thought he was. So maybe you're a skeptic. We're on believing today. Oops. My question is, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? <clears throat> what would it take for you to believe that he's who he says he is? See, the question isn't, and the problem isn't you're not smart enough. The problem isn't that you don't have enough evidence. The problem is that you already know who he is, and regardless of what he's going to do, outside of Christ, it's not enough. And so we see the exasperated heart of Jesus and the active blindness of the Pharisees. So he leaves again and goes into the boat, and now he goes to the northeast side of Bethsaida. And we see now Jesus and the disciples in verses 14 through 21. Verses 14 through 21. And it says, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. I think this is conclusive evidence that none of the disciples were ever women. Because if any of the disciples were women, there would not have been this problem, right? There would, every disciple would have had his food, his allotted food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with his name on it. And they would have, there would, this, this account would never have been in the Bible. But anyway, <clears throat> that's a side point. Um, but Jesus is still thinking, still mulling about the Pharisees. And he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He's talking about the self-centeredness, the self-righteous Pharisees. So what did the Pharisees, or what did the disciples do? They start arguing about that they have no food, that they have no bread. Hey, I thought you were supposed to bring the bread. No, you were supposed to bring the bread. And Jesus, many of you can relate, I think. I thought about this. <laughs> you know, maybe you've had a hard work, of, hard week of work. You've had struggles with people there. You've had a difficult things going on, and you're ready to go away for the weekend with your family. And you haven't even left the driveway, and everybody's arguing and screaming at each other. I can only imagine Jesus saying, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Don't you understand? Are your hearts hardened? You know, they didn't get this half wrong. They didn't kind of get the story. 
kind of get what he was teaching? They missed it 100%. You know, if they got it half wrong, they would have at least said, you know, hey, Jesus, what's, what's the deal with the, the leaven of the Pharisees? Like, is it, uh, is it, is it, is it bad? Is it, is it, you know, poisonous? Is it kind of like the, the mystery meat that somebody brings to the church potluck? I mean, what's, what's wrong with the, the, the Pharisees' leaven? But they miss it all together. All, they, hear, they hear leaven, and that's all they think about. They just think about their, their physical bread. They miss the spiritual part. They miss what he was talking about. They, t- they missed the part about the Pharisees. They missed the part about the Herodians. Hadn't they just seen Jesus feed 5,000? Hadn't they just seen Jesus for- feed 4,000? And they're arguing and they're fighting that they don't have any bread. Do you think Jesus is going to let them starve? And he's not even talking about bread. Sin blinds us to spiritual realities. So he says in verse 17, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he asks him again in verse 21, And do you not yet understand? See, the disciples missed him as well. Rather than being changed by Jesus, rather than being transformed by what he had to teach them, they changed what he had to say and they transformed it into this this box that they had already fit him into. They They weren't willing to listen to what Jesus had to say to them. We see the amazement of Jesus and again, the blindness of his disciples. What is tragic in each one of these texts? The crowd, this big crowd, by and large missed him. The Pharisees, actively blind, totally missed him. Totally blind. The disciples, smaller group, his 12, his core, his guys, his dudes missed him. We see that in all of Mark. We see it at the height, at the end of the book. When it came to Jesus' trial and crucifixion, what happened? The crowds mocked him. They jeered him. The religious leaders arrested him. And the disciples, they were nowhere to be seen. So what about you? Do you believe that, like I asked you before, do you believe that he really fed the 4,000? Do you believe? Let me ask you another question. Have you ever worried about anything? What good does it do if you believe in God that he can do these miracles and yet you worry about your next paycheck? You worry about that next doctor checkup. See, here's where it gets turned on us. We are just like the disciples. And Jesus' question is, do you not yet understand? The question that turns to us is do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hard? The same Jesus that fed the 4,000 is the one who can change hearts, the heart of your son or your daughter, your father or your friend. Is your heart hard? Do you not yet understand? 
Now, almost every message I heard this week, or every comment, uh, when I, I, you try to hear a bunch of different messages, and almost all of them stopped at verse 21. And I get it because we should stop and we should reflect and we should think because the point of this is not so much the blindness of the crowds, which we need to see. We need to see the blindness of the Pharisees. We need to see the blindness of the disciples. But we need to stop and we need to think about our own blindness, our own hard hearts, our own ununderstanding. But to do that, to stop there, to not look at the last part, is to miss the pinnacle of what Mark's saying. Mark is trying to illustrate what he wants us to learn. There's a great truth, a great picture of this miracle. That if we miss it, if we don't go to verses 22 and 26, we don't. It's like singing a song and not singing the last two words. Reading a poem and not reading the last line. So it says this, They came to the Seda, and some of the people brought a blind man, brought to him a blind man. So what does he do? He takes this blind man, and he spits on his eyes and laid hands on him. And he says, do you see anything? And he says, well, yeah, kind of, I guess. I mean, but I see people, but they're, they're like trees, and they're walking around. What, what is going on here? I mean, is, uh, is Jesus like a superhero, like the superhero we talked about before, like his... His miracle tank is only half full, so he could only, you know, it's, it's, it was emptied from the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, did he just not have, have the power that day to only kind of do half a miracle? This is not working so well, is it? <clears throat> well, if you look in chapter 7, go right up above. Right before this story, he heals a deaf man. And it says in verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure. And it says, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. So there's not a problem here of Jesus and his power. What's going on here? Why is he only healing halfway? You know, what's interesting is this is the only question. This is the only related in Mark. And it's the only miracle that he says, he asks a question. For instance, if you go up to as the miracle that we just have in the, in the, of the deaf man, in verse 34, he commands, he speaks with authority. Verse 34, he said, he said to the deaf man, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. <laughs> Which is amazing in and of itself since the man was deaf. But his ears were opened. He speaks with authority. And whatever he said happened. So why does he have a half-seeing man here? This is a visual aid for his disciples. I trust that you see it. There's nine terms in these verses, in 22 to 26. Nine times where it talks about seeing and sight. This is a visual aid for the disciples. He's trying to teach them something. He did this miracle for the disciples to say, you know what, you kind of see, but not really. You don't get it. You're spiritually half-blind. And what's great is they got it, kind of. In Mark, or Matthew 16, 12, 
after he was in them, he's with the disciples. It says this, the disciples finally understood he was not talking about leaven of the bread, but about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they saw it a little bit. So God wants to teach us. But we need his touch, just like he touched these people, this blind man. Our only hope is the touch of the Savior. He's the one who gives us eyes to see. He's the eternal creator, the great healer, the giver of life, and even better, the giver of eternal life. So as we close, will you ask him to touch you again, to help you see, to trust him, to put your worry at his feet, and believe that he's in control, he's sovereign, that he can give greater sight to you and to the sight to others who don't see at all. Until that day, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we aren't going to see completely. But verse, in 1 Corinthians it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, speaking of heaven face to face, that new earth, now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That day, our eyes will be totally open. It will be great. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. I pray that we would trust you, that you can heal a man who's blind, you can feed 4,000, and you can help us see you a little clearer. And you can give eyes to those who don't know you at all. We pray these things in your name. Amen.